I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Luke Turner on his memoir, Out of the Woods. Luke Turner is a writer, editor and curator based in London. He co-founded and edits the influential online music publication The Quietus and regularly writes on music, culture and place for a variety of magazines, websites and broadcasters. And Luke's first book is Out of the Woods, which we're going to be talking about today. Luke, welcome to Little Atoms. Good evening. So the book begins with a picture of a wood, a painting of a forest. Tell us why. Yeah, it's a forest uh, picture um, that had been on my, the wall of my parents' house and I was quite obsessed with it as a kid. You know one of these things that you, you, when you're a child you get a bit... You, you can, you'd be quite afraid of things for strange reasons. And it's, it's quite a creepy picture of Epping Forest with this sort of very gnarled old tree and a figure disappearing into the woods. And I found it quite a spooky picture, to be honest. I think my parents even took it down like a few years ago just because they found it a bit gloomy. And then when I was writing the book, I kind of it it reappeared in my mind basically this this picture, and I thought it was a good image to start the book with. And oddly, it came to sort of summarise a lot of the book. The book was kind of shaped by a lot of different pictures and photographs and things like that, which was quite interesting. So, in the main, the book the wood of the title in the book is Epping Forest, although there are little excursions to other ones. Yeah. But um well tell us something about the about Epping Forest itself, first of all, the history of it, how you know how it was saved before we talk about your own connection to it. Yeah, Epping Forest is a twelve mile bit of woodland, ancient woodland that stretches from Forest Gate and Manor Park in East London, right out north through Waltham Forest, the borough, past Chingford and out into Essex, like proper Essex countryside. The M twenty five actually now goes underneath it, the big circular motorway around London. So it's a very strange place in it. It straddles the very, very urban and the English rural. And in the 19th century, it was being cut down by various landowners uh, for housing as London expanded or farmland and so on. And 
it had been a place for of kind of recreation and work for the local people. Particularly poor people would come in and lop the wood for firewood. And London had put great demand on the forest for firewood as well and building materials. So it was a very intensively managed landscape, which people had a lot relying on. So when it was being felled, this was hugely disrupted to people's lives. And there was a man called Thomas Willingale, whose family, it was a very poor man, whose family traditionally lopped the woods. And when the forest near them in Loughton was enclosed and they weren't allowed to go in anymore, he said, sod that, went in and broke the law and started lopping the wood. And he got arrested. And this sort of kick-started a bit of a campaign to save the forest. He got taken up in the newspapers, and there was a sort of very violent campaign of letter-writing in the Victorian press. And it became the first conservation movement, really. People sort of saying, well, we need to save this place. It's right by London. London's very choked, and it's expanding, and there's a lot of pollution. And the Corporation of London took up the campaign, and through a lot of very convoluted legalese which took me hours to wade through ended up saving the forest because they were able to claim rights of common grazing over it using the ancient forest laws um, because it had been a royal forest a royal hunting forest and that saved the forest in 1878 Uh, forever is the pronouncement and hopefully so and you mentioned there that it was, you know, heavily sort of managed as often is the case. You know, these places are often described as ancient woodlands, but they've always basically been like man-made creations. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the, the one of the real misconceptions about woodland in the UK, at least, is that it's all this sort of primal landscape and, and, and is nature in inverted commas. And there isn't any original primal woodland in, in England at all. And Epping Forest was, uh, the pollen records suggest it was originally 90% small leaf lime trees up until the Saxon period when intensive selection and management changed it to beech, hornbeam and, and oak, the three sort of dominant species today. So you can really see it's, an, it's almost an industrial landscape in a way. And, I, and that was one of the things I found fascinating when I started researching forest history a lot more and realising, wow, these places, we're, we're utterly tied into them as people. Um, in the ancient past, I think a great fear of forests, uh, and, and because that's where dangerous animals live, they weren't brilliant places for us to to dwell. We were much better off on the open plains where you could hunt and move more easily. So they shaped the early imaginations, and then in more recent history, the, the entire history of, of Britain particularly was entirely uh, connected with the management of woodlands, uh, particularly, you know, Epping Forest since Saxon times when, when that species selection and, and pollarding the trees, cutting them on a 13-yearly cycle to, so they keep creating new wood. That's when that began. Tell us about your connection to the wood in childhood in particular. Yeah, we used to go a lot because my granny lived right near the forest. My parents are from Loughton, um, this London suburb now on the edge of Epping Forest. And so I always loved going there. It was this really weird-looking place. The trees, because of the pollarding, have grown up very, very oddly and they kind of look like hands clawing at the sky. And it just had this magical resonance for me. I grew up in my teenage years and, well, kind of from the age of about eight or nine, in a very boring town around the M25, a kind of commuter hellhole sort of place, which had no, nothing exciting about it at all, nothing beautiful. And so Epping Forest was this wonderful place. We'd go and sort of drive off the motorway and suddenly you're in, the, the trees are reaching overhead and it all looks very weird. And my uncle um, and auntie were, loved the forest to live right opposite it and they'd take us in and we'd go and collect wood and build dams and all this and it's a, it was this very special place for me um as a kid and I think I was going through some very difficult times when the book starts and I was trying to reconnect with the forest as this sort of place of innocence and childhood and 
uh, wanting to be rescued by it in the way that we're told nature can do, and it failed. <laughs> and the other thing to say about forests in general is that they've always been a place where outsiders can find refuge. So you talk in the book about, you know, highwaymen, for instance, highwaymen to hermits, and in the modern day, cruising grounds are often found in forests. Um, and indeed, there's a there's a central figure in this book who you always just describe as the man in the forest who lives there. Tell us something about him. Well, he was somebody I, I found via my auntie and uncle because he walked past their house every day. And he lived up in the, in the forest near Repping. And, you know, when I started writing the book, it was going to be this sort of social history of the forest because there hadn't been one in a long time about people. And I wanted to, uh, to be interested to meet him. And so I went up there a couple of times to talk to him. And he was just this incredible character and one of the most amazing people I've ever met. He'd been chronically depressed and went into the forest and it kind of cured him, but not in this sentimental way that we, you know, there wasn't a nature cure or forest bathing or anything. It was it was a, quite an extreme cure, I think, a kind of ex- an incredibly radical realignment of, of who he was. And he lived, he lived up there and kind of wandered around, annoyed the golfers, which I, I was very into. It was quite interesting. He really divided local people. You know, it's quite conservative up around Essex, and some people hated him, and some people liked him. Women tend to, tended to really kind of like his presence, and men, golfing men, SUV-driving men, didn't really like him. And I found, found him just a, this wonderful figure who was kind of instrumental in kind of exploring the forest for me, really. And, I mean, as you just mentioned, the book still is a, a sort of social history of Epping Forest, but it also becomes a story about yourself. And so we'll go there now. So you mentioned you were going through some tough times. Your story in this book starts with a breakup. Mm, yeah, and, and that was the thing. I was kind of, you know, God, man breaks up with girlfriend, goes into forest and tries to heal himself. What a, a trite narrative but it was it was it wasn't just the breakup really it was this sort of realizing that there were a lot of things that had happened uh in my life and they were still having consequences and there was a lot of um difficult issues that I'd not resolved and they were kind of almost sort of such insurmountable issues that there was no way the forest would work and so as I was writing the book it, it did start becoming more about me because I started bleeding into the not bleed I mean like a radiator, not blood, <laughs> into the into the narrative. And I was writing a column for the Caught by the River website, and I did a couple that were very personal. It was a column set in the forest. And the personal ones really seemed to resonate with people. And people said, well, this is actually a very universal story that you're telling, you know, encourage, and encourage me along that path. And as I went further along that path into the woods, it got darker and more twisted and more explicit and more honest. And... That was an interesting process, really, kind of feeling that I had to go down that route. And so from the breakup, it begins to be, you know, an exploration of, I guess, bisexuality and its visibility, basically. Tell us some of the the issues, I guess, that male bisexuals face. Yeah, I mean, that's because we, we keep being told we live in these great enlightened times and as children are all um, sort of fluid around gender and sexuality. And I slightly question whether this is true just from hearing things about, you know, people who aren't in a sort of London metropolitan bubble or what have you. I'm, and, and what was very striking was while I was writing the book, I found out my secondary school had actually failed an Ofsted inspection due to homophobic bullying. Was, and that, you know, that's just outside London. So obviously this, this is still a big issue. And um, it was for me... To, Growing up as a teenager, there was just no, there was no 
bisexual male visibility at all. It wasn't really discussed. Bowie wasn't really a big icon like he is now. Um, or he became, and I, I got really into suede, but they they kind of represented that for me. But they were never sort of really seen as bisexual or what have you, and they were kind of a fringe thing. But you know, I didn't know any bisexual people. When later on, I started interacting with with gay culture, a lot of that actually was quite intolerant of bisexual men. There was this sort of somewhat patronising view that bisexual men were just closet, extremely closeted gay men. Um, it's very fetishized in. Uh, gay world in many ways in the heterosexual world it's seen uh, bisexuality is seen as a threat not fetishized at all like it is with female bisexuality which is in a, in a whole other issue is the fetishization and, and eroticization of female bisexuality with men it's a very it's it's seen as threatening and i thought there wasn't there wasn't really any writing anywhere that i'd encountered that in, engage with this properly and that again became something that fed into the narrative and that school that you've just mentioned, when you were there, it's obviously an all-boys school. Mm. And, you know, all-boys schools, even more than most schools full of teenage boys, tend to engender what, I guess, we didn't in the 1980s call toxic masculinity. Yeah, I think it really did. I mean, it was a state school that had been a grammar school and it still had that delusions of grammar school sort of strictness. Rugby was the most sort of defining thing. Um I mean, it's just weird because I liked a lot of the teachers. I just couldn't stand the people I went to school with, most of them. And it, it was, it was, it had this just this sort of nasty, aggressive atmosphere. And if you didn't fit in with what was expected in terms of your, of masculinity, then you were in trouble. Um, you know, well, I wasn't some sort of uh, really picked on, quiet, shivering person like you. But I did, you know, at lunchtime when everyone else was playing football, I'd go to the library and read. Uh, and you know, sometimes I probably gave as good as I got with a lot of stuff but at the same time it, I just found it so so repressive I hated sport and the way that that dominated everything and the kind of emerging sexuality of uh, boisterousness of teen teenagers I, I I really didn't like I still find it sometimes you see a bunch of teenage lads on the on the bus or whatever I find it very intimidating it's weird you know now I'm three times their age I still four times I still find it strange you know that that presence I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Luke Turner and we're talking about his book Out of the Woods. And Luke, before we broke, we just left you at school and there's a little bit of experimentation goes on at school, which you talk about in the book. But then there's a there's an encounter in the toilets behind M&S in St. Albans. What happens? It was a somewhat unpleasant encounter with a nasty old pervert, basically, to be blunt. Um, and another of these little talked about things, uh, aspects of sexuality, is the impact that this can have on you. And it was really grim and horrible. And I, I mean, I find that reading that bit of the book extremely hard now, and it was very hard to write. Um, and that it's weird that that ended up being in the book in some ways because it was a book about the forest. But then that was a defining moment in my life. It really set off all sorts of bad behaviour patterns and things that um, then were, were the, the were the subjects that I was trying to wrestle with in my life. And then that fed into the book. And it being because I was right, I wrote a piece for the Quietus about that idiot Milo um, Yiannopoulos when he kind of made a joke about teenagers having sex with old men. And I was like, ooh. You know, I made jokes like that, but it's kind of the, that masks something really nasty. And That's I wrote a coping mechanism. It is a total. Kind of, I used to say I was providing care in the community for old age pensioners or or whatever. You know, which is just sort of like bleak British humour. Um, and it is a coping mechanism. And but I knew that behind that there was something that was a lot more twisted and had a lot more consequences. And I'd written an article for the Quietus about that, and it, I just got this in one like wonderful response, but a big response. And people saying they found it very helpful, and people saying they'd been through similar things, and you know they'd only just started dealing with it through therapy and and, and so on. And so I, that ended up being being a big part of the the book. But, I mean, as you said, it must have been a tough thing to revisit when you were writing it. Yeah, it was pretty horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that incident basically sets off a pattern of similar incidents that, you know, develop into basically the way that you approach your sexuality, I guess. I mean, it, it sort of becomes indivisible from that. It overshadows everything that, that sort of happens and... You know, is part of one of the reasons. I mean, throughout, you know, during the be- the beginning of the book, you're talking about, you know, the fact that your acceptance of your of your bisexuality 
you think is what's possibly making you like you know struggle with intimacy in long-term relationships but of course there's this thing in the background all the time yeah i mean that's the the, the it's all connected it's even you know, it's in a way the forest is a metaphor for it the way that everything is connected and you you can't escape uh th- that fact and so yeah it was it was going working out sort of which bits had done which things which bits like you can it was possible to live with uh how to unpick different aspects and and so on and the experience also colors your relationship with nature with the woods themselves yeah because it's the, the woods are not just this sort of innocent place they're a place of sexuality and that's you know that's one of the paradoxes in in the book is that they're places where you i've those compulsive difficult se- elements of sexuality but they're also I, I in a way i kind of I love the woods for sheltering behavior patterns that are not tolerated by society and allow people in escape but it's a really gray area it's a totally paradoxical very difficult place you know there's people going into the forest to have sex but that impacts on other people so it's a self it's a selfish act as well as being a liberating act and i felt that that was that was really got to the core of how paradoxical forests are how they're just very very complicated places because they allow us to do things that society would frown on, other people would frown on that are damaging to other people and so on so male bisexuality is something wherein at the time there wasn't that many role models and it's not something that's particularly talked about the abuse you suffered male on male abuse is not something that's talked about as much as other types of abuse and this leads you into you know compulsive sexual behavior which could perhaps be described as a sex addiction which again is something else that's Mm. really not it's often seen as a joke. Yeah, people think, oh, you can't get addicted to sex. And, you know, a lot of these idiots like um, Weinstein or um, Kevin Spacey have used sex addiction as an excuse for what I think is an abuse of power. It, it, you, it's not sex addicts are not all abusers at all. And I think there's a very dangerous thing happening where the two things being conflated. And I don't understand. People who say, oh, you can't get addicted to to sex, you compulsive behaviour is just greedy people or whatever. People just don't know what they're talking about. There's a lot of medical research increasingly that it is an issue, and I've spoken to a lot of people who suffer from that behaviour. And just because you're not putting something inside you to make yourself high or to create a reaction, like with cigarettes, tobacco, drugs or whatever, it's, it's kind of more terrifying because it's within you. It's like uh, your own body and your own mind unleashes that particular drug. And I, I think it's something I hope it's, it gets more and more researched. I think it, it deserves more research. Um, and Because it, 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 it is such a thorny, under-discussed, taboo issue. And there's a, you know, the, we live in these sex-positive times, and I think you know, now everything goes, uh, you know, promiscuities, liberation... And so on and so forth. And so, well, is that actually the helpful way of looking at things? Again, there's a massive grey area between the ultra-conservative kind of sin narrative and the where hey, sex positive, anything goes narrative. I think there's a far more interesting and complicated place somewhere in the middle. Which again, which was what the book ended up being about. It's kind of everything about the book is going. Hang on, we live in a really binary time. Everything has turned into binary opinion and binary ways of seeing things and what we need to be doing is going right there's these really tricky and thorny nasty places the only way we're going to deal with stuff is by getting really deep into them and unpicking them you mentioned just then the the sin narrative something we haven't mentioned so far is the book is also a story of 
your religious upbringing, your father was a, a Methodist preacher, and you know you're still a a spiritual person, shall we say? And I guess in as well as having this abuse narrative in the back of your mind when all of this compulsive behaviour is going on, obviously you're also dealing with you know your religious upbringing. Yeah, I mean, it's the odd, odd thing that, that I've only realised now how much the book is about religion because people keep asking me about it. And I hadn't, I hadn't really realised it was because it's part of who I am. I was yeah. brought up with it. Um, I've never wanted to reject it. Um, maybe I've tried at times. But I, there's, like everything, there was huge positives and huge negatives. For my parents, there was, I can't think of a more loving upbringing, and that was all shaped by their religious belief. And, you know, in recent years... I've, I've not felt that the kind of militant atheist movement has had anything to offer whatsoever, apart from it's a theism of itself. Um, one, like most theisms, controlled by a load of miserable old bastards, men dictating how you should and shouldn't believe and pompously pronouncing judgment. There is bad, probably worse than religious people, because there's no love, there's no charity, there's no caring, uh, there's no community to, to that particular movement. I, I really loathe it. I find much more joy in the Christian faith and going to church, where, in particularly in London, where you know people say London's a multi-ethnic place. People don't really interact between the different ethnicities. I go to church and there'll be 20, 30 different groups, ethnic groups, uh, and people of different nationalities worshipping. I think that's a wonderful thing. And so I wanted to bring that into the book and I wanted to go, actually, you know, talking about religion in a positive way is, is kind of weird these days. It's, 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 not, it's not very hip, is it? <laughs> um, but I, I have a huge time for, for what the Christian faith gave me. Unpicking the sinful aspect was very, very difficult. I think a lot of that narrative comes from American conservative churches and other parts of the world where Christianity is you know, thriving as it declines here, which kind of have culturally more homophobic tendencies. And we tend to only hear in the media about the examples of homophobia and hypocrisy when actually there's, you know, there's quite a network of queer clergy now and queer Christians who uh, and particularly active on social media. Um, and I think, again, that's a very nuanced thing. Christianity is a broad church. That's where the saying comes from. And, and I, I think that's been a very interesting aspect to, to the book and the reception to it is seeing actually that there's a lot of people, even without religious belief, who are sick of the atheists and find out the woods quite rewarding in the nuanced approach to religion. But that narrative, in your own mind, that narrative is is there throughout your you know your childhood and your you know your early 20s while a lot of this compulsive behavior is going on you've always got this thought gnawing at the back of your mind that you are somehow doing something sinful because i guess on the one hand that narrative does exist within certain aspects of the church but i'd say probably even more so to the gain this is something that you know you were probably confusing for that you know that abuse narrative that was always there in the background as well yeah i mean the two things they're always present, but the abuse, what happened in that way, that wasn't really, I would say, something that made me think about sin. That was more an exploitative uh, situation. No, I mean, but I mean I, you've I, got that sort of, you've always carrying that sort of, some guilt from it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think if you say something's naughty, then you're going to find it interesting. I mean, that is the... I've always found it quite odd how the church is just a religion can be so obsessed with sex and kind of forgets about all the other uh, sins that could, you know, I think a lot of energy is spent by Christians attacking gay people that could far better be spent attacking 
banks, financiers, um, conservative politicians, people like that. Because I got a lot of my politics from religion, really. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a complicated dual argument, a complicated dual narrative. You know, I mean, it's no wonder I ended up a Leonard Cohen fan, really. <laughs> Well, without giving too much away of you know the the, sort of the journey that you do take in the book, um, there's a you know a quite significant incident that happens in Berlin. Um, you you know you at this point in a, another long term relationship. Basically, where are you now? I guess after you know obviously this book has been written. Yeah, I mean it's the, it's the slightly thing of going. Oh, you you don't want to go. Oh, I've, you wrote a book which has a great catharsis and everything's fine. And I was really didn't want to write a book that had this kind of very sort of upward trajectory and positive narrative. And um, I wanted to write something more ambiguous. But things are a lot better, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you've already mentioned a bit of it, but I want to talk about what the reception to the book has been from various different communities. Yeah, it's been it's been a, a kind of bonkers. You write, about, I mean, I've been on the other side of the fence, right, criticizing other people's work for d- decades now. Uh, it's quite odd to be the other way around. And people have been really, really amazing. It's got lovely reviews. People have said it's been very helpful to them. I've been so chuffed with the kind of queer community and queer world have been so positive you know I was I was quite nervous because I was you know I'm quite critical of so, somehow by the how the gay community can be biphobic and and so on and I was worried about how it would go down in that world but you know it, it's been great that response I, I've really appreciated that it's been lovely and you know there was one review in the evening standard this kind of absolutely bonkers uh shooing uh of the book um, where I got called weedy, needy, and seedy, and you know, and that was that was very interesting because you know people were really worried about how I take this review because it was basically a character assassination on me, and you know I've been I've been around long enough to know that very bad press is often far better than good press, and so I was able to take that review and absolutely use it to my ends and point out that that was exactly why I wrote the book was you know this writer was sort of they, they kind of I mean they amended the review after a load of people complained about it. Basically saying, you know, 14-year-old kids going into public lavatories are fair game for pensioners. It was this sort of nonce-enabling, very bizarre, victim-blaming article, which I don't think anyone would have got away with saying that about a young girl in a similar... A 14-year-old girl who was having sex with a 60-year-old man. There was no way you'd get away with that now in a mainstream publication like the Evening Standard. Um, so that was... It was interesting, that review, because it kind of proved why I had to write the book. There's just all this prejudice is still very much out there. So I've been talking to Luke Turner. We've been talking about his book, Out of the Woods, which is out in the UK from Wiederfield and Nicholson. Luke, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about it. Thank you very much for having me on. Cheers. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.